Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into an interesting discussion with uh, renowned scholar uh, Richard Bushman, we uh, want to get in this uh, comment that uh, came in. Uh, you'll recall, if you were uh, tuned in yesterday, we had a discussion with uh, Dr. Cynthia Molabita, um, who is a Christian uh, ethics professor, uh, talking about intersection between ethics and the environment and uh, social and economic justice. We also had with us uh, Reverend Scott Thaliker from Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Logan. And uh, we were talking about environment and uh, social equality and, uh, um, and economics. Uh, but we got to talking about religion as well. We had a couple of religious people in the studio. And uh, Glenn uh, wrote in, uh, expressing his skepticism about the juxtaposition of those uh, two words, Christian and ethics. And we had, I uh, thought, some very thoughtful responses to Glenn's thoughtful question. And uh, then Glenn wrote back in. We didn't get this in the program, wanted to make sure we did. Uh, he says, beautiful answers. I have to admit, I like what I'm hearing. I think it all boils down to the golden rule, which can be universally applied to nearly every human interaction safely and equitably. That's Glenn. So thanks again for your uh, comment yesterday. Provoked interesting discussion. And uh, thanks for that follow-up. By the way, uh, Glenn, I did make sure that my guests uh, saw your response before they left yesterday. I want to get that on for our listeners uh, today. Thanks for tuning in for Access Utime. Tom Williams will jump into the program now. We uh, had a conference on the USU campus, uh, New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. That was in March uh, Joseph Smith did not translate as a scholar does, but as he proclaimed by the gift and power of God. And the conference asked, one of the questions they asked, what does evidence disclose about the processes behind Smith's revelations? That question was taken up by various uh, scholars. Philip Barlow, who uh, is a professor on the USU uh, campus, a professor of religious studies. He holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture in the Department of History at USU. He said uh, that there's a good deal of new fruitful thinking about the nature of Joe Smith and translation. And he goes on to say there are many topics that need exploration, but none of them is more important to understanding Joseph Smith's project and the launch of a new religious tradition than Smith's translation enterprise. One of the scholars participating was Richard Bushman, professor of history emeritus at Columbia University, formerly Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, author of a biography of Joseph Smith called Rough Stone Rolling. And he came into studios while he was uh, in town for the conference. We talked about faith and doubt in the uh, Mormon uh, faith. I also talked about the state of scholarship about Mormonism and other topics. And uh, here's my conversation with Richard Bushman. So I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, th- this uh, conference. Um, it's um, about translation. And uh, so I'm, I guess the, the first question is um, why this, why focus a, a conference on, on this particular mm-hmm. question? Uh, translation, and more specifically the translation of the Book of Mormon, uh, has always been a puzzle. Why does Joseph Smith call it translation when he doesn't know the language? He's not doing what normal translators do. Uh, but there's been some more perplexities uh, for a while, the large question, and still is unanswered, is um, when he received those words of the Book of Mormon, is it they're just sort of given to him, they come into his head, or they 
he sees them in the seer stone? Or is he just sort of given an overall vision of events or something and then um, makes up his own words so that his language, his thoughts are intermingled with what he saw? This is the problem that Mormons have in trying to understand the translation. So that's an old problem that's still around. But the new problem uh, was brought out by the uh, release of pictures of the seer stone. So we now have a picture of him, which comes from Emma Smith, who saw it all happening, sitting at a table, looking at a seer stone in a hat. And the plates remain wrapped in the linen cloth sitting on the table. So the plates are put under his bed every night. He gets them out every morning, sits them on the table, and doesn't look at them. So we have to say, what is going on? What, what kind of a translation is this? So it's a puzzle lots of people um, wonder about. And uh, so one of the things we're trying to do at this conference is figure out what he meant when he said, use the word translation. Hmm. Uh, so various uh, scholars, yourself, uh, Terrell Gibbons, uh, several several others, um, including, I think, a, a, a linguist, a, a literature uh, expert. Well, yes, not, not a linguist in the hmm. sense of a student of languages, but a, uh, a student of literature hmm. uh, was part of it. Um, Jared Hickman uh, was one of the presenters, and then a woman named Rosalind Welch was a commentator. She was trained in literature. Hmm. Um, so this is, I guess this is a puzzle, uh, something to be worked out by believers. So maybe we could start there and then uh, get to the church's um, interaction, uh, outreach to, to the other faith communities. Um, so this, this particularly the, 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 the new uh, puzzle, the seer stone, so not a traditional translation, um, is, is the institutional church wrestling with these things? I'm not sure that um, it's debated uh, in the institutional church, and I don't think it's debated particularly by uh, philosophers. Where there is a debate is between what's called strict control and loose control. The strict control, uh, represented by the work of scholars like Royal Skousen, is the one I mentioned before, where he sees the words. He's just reading a script. And this is appealed to um, a certain kind of believing Mormon because it implies it's not Joseph Smith, it's all from heaven. It's God revealing these things to him. While the people who advocate loose control, Brant Gardner and others have versions of this, many variants, um, seemingly room for human intervention. The imagination of Joseph Smith gets into it. So some Mormons feel uneasy about that because it implies it's more a human than a divine product. Mm -hmm. So where do you think that debate is among those who, who are, are debating it? Well, it's at a stalemate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are those who believe one way and those who believe another. But uh, this conference really focused on you should say, leave that debate behind or rise above it, and was looking at other ways of what is meant uh, by translation. Mm. This is a key, isn't it? Because Joseph Smith insisted on using this word. Exactly. And he doesn't just use it casually. 
I translated this by the gift and power of God. But in the Book of Mormon, you have this figure, King Messiah, who's a translator, has interpreters, translates the plates of the Jaredites. And then Ammon, who's describing it, goes on to say that he is a seer. And the translation gift is part of being a seer. And this is the greatest gift God can give. So suddenly this, from just a mechanical uh, management of a foreign language, this becomes a high calling from God. Furthermore, it's built into the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon is a text that's being written at one time with the intention of being read at another time by people who don't know the original language. So the way history is structured in the Book of Mormon, translation becomes a crucial activity. It's necessary in order for it to fulfill its mission that translation be accounted for. Hmm. Was there a uh, conclusion from the conference? You know, many different uh, parts of the mosaic, right? Uh, but was, was there a, a central conclusion or a series of conclusions come out of this conference? Well, you know how academics are. <laughs> you don't want to get an answer, and then there's no more fun. Right. Uh, well, the conclusion was, uh, on the whole, that there's a new way of looking at uh, these questions that does not get into the issue of what degree of inspiration was involved, that it's possible to look at this um, as an activity uh, where God is working through Joseph Smith, and it doesn't matter how that working happens, that his mind is actively involved in it in some way, more active than the strict control would would advocate, but uh, uh, still, room for inspiration. But the point is, this group of people is not really interested in debating that question anymore. They're more interested in sort of describing this as a literary activity where a human being is making religion. And that seems like a divine process, one that Mormons should love, and uh, the question of how much inspiration was involved there is a little bit beside the point. Hmm. This that that particular debate that you just uh, characterized that that I think is a debate that's been happening inside the church, inside church leadership. How you know how much to engage, how how, how transparent to be, right or not to be. The idea being that uh, you know the faith of some members would be damaged with full transparency. Yeah. Well, this particular group, and I would say the audience of what must have been 200 people, the place was jammed in standing room only, um, um, it's sort of beyond the issue of transparency. I mean, they're just so familiar with talking candidly, uninhibitedly about where their thoughts are leading them because they're people who sort of know where they stand in relationship to the church. They're they have their own faith and their convictions. So they're just interested in the intellectual problem and sort of uncovering the riches of the Mormon tradition uh, rather than debating is it true or false. Hmm. Uh, how, is, how do you think that, that particular, talking about, say, a particular ward, 
um, you know, member X of the church. Um, do, do you think most members of the church go forward sort of irrespective to this whole debate that's raging or this uh, scholarly inquiry that's going on? I think you get various reactions. Um, uh, there are people who are troubled by anything that disturbs the standard pattern, the way they learned it as kids, the way they hear it in Sunday school, they do anything that departs, even in small details, seems to be uh, seems as a challenge, and they sort of pull back. There are others, and there are a lot of these people. This whole room full of them yesterday were just curious. They want to really know, and uh, they're just delighted to learn what uh, scholars are are thinking about. Mm. And you know they they don't feel like their faith is at stake in this. It's a curiosity that pulls them along. Mm. There has been a lot of publicity over you know prominent uh, members of the LDS faith uh, you know leaving the church. You have a, an interesting uh, phrase I encountered in a Salt Lake Tribune uh, podcast. Others were participating, but they quoted you. Uh, some members, I guess, uh, are switched off, and others are squeezed out. <laughs> so I wonder if you talk a bit about that. Yeah, there's nothing like a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> uh, I, I get a lot of letters from people who are struggling with their faith, and I talk to fireside groups. So I have not a scientific sample, but a fairly large sample. And it does seem like there are sort of two avenues that people are sometimes a little bit on both, but uh, predominantly on one or the other. And one avenue is people who stumble onto a fact that throws them for a loop. Many versions of the first vision, some of which have a, are different in some details. Or the Book of Abraham, that's a big one, that the scrolls didn't appear to have writings of Abraham on them. And then it goes on to Joseph Smith's character. And these people, seeing this set of facts that run contrary to what they learned, suddenly feel like the whole world is crashing down. And that the, it just it's like, you remember that caricature of the lady um, and the hag? You look at the lady one time and she's beautiful, and then suddenly you see the same lines and she's ugly. And people sort of go through that and it's shocking and disillusioning. And uh, they feel like they've been lied to and feel very bitter about it. Uh, and these are the people who are switched off, and it can happen very quickly. It can happen in a week or less. But then there are others who just feel uncomfortable in the church. They don't like the church's stand on gay marriage. They don't like the way women are treated in the church. They still worry about the history of, of uh, racism in the priesthood ban. So when they speak out, they're not listened to. They sort of feel like they don't belong in the con in the congregation. Maybe they have a bad incident with their bishop or something. And these people, they don't suddenly just disappear. They just are worn down. They they, they just can't take it after a while. So they are squeezed out. Mm the prescription i think you would come down on if, if characterize this you can uh, tell me if i'm mistaken reading some things on on uh, 
uh, church leadership, the church as a whole, to d- deal with those who are switched off is is the is the transparency, right? Right, and it seems like the institutional ch- church has been going that direction. A huge change. I mean, we're really going through an axial moment in in uh, Latter Day Saint history, and in lots of ways, it began really, I think, with the church, the Joseph Smith Papers, which were instructed by President Hinckley when the project was proposed to write it for scholars, that it had to be accurate, it had to be based in the sources, had to deal with all the problems, and they've carried that out beautifully. So they set a standard of historical truth uh, for the church. And then that's spread into these gospel topics, essays that pick up one uh, problem after another and deal with them. It's getting into the instructional system of the church, into the institute manuals. It's not perfect or 100%, but uh, they've gone a long way. And you could optimistically uh, predict that the problem of the switched-off types will is generational. The next generation raised with this all this information isn't going to be uh, going, going to be vulnerable like mm. the previous uh, one mm. one did. Uh, this is including in the for the young people. You know, the seminary system of the church is, I think, in trying to embrace more transparency. Right. Yeah, uh, I th- what I've heard is that the manuals which have history in them are uh, sent over to the church history department for the scholars to check it to make sure that it's it's accurate. Hmm. What about the, the, the squeezed out problem? I guess the, the church leaders would see yeah. this as, as, as a problem. Uh, on the one hand, you have certain stands and the, and the church does as any church institution goes through it, um, reaching out, becoming more normalized, and then, you know, border yeah. maintenance and, and going back to becoming more exclusive. I don't know if you see that as part of that continuum, or or uh, how do you see this 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 squeezed out? Uh, issue? I think that's that's different, and that's not going to be solved easily or quickly. Hmm. Um, my own feeling is that um, you know the church really feels a responsibility to protect moral standards of various sorts, and whenever you set up a moral standard, whether it's on chastity or honesty. Uh, there's going to be debates and there's a room for friction and, and uh, Ill, Ill feelings. And the church has taken some pretty strong stands against gay marriage and uh, transgender uh, transitions. Um, and these have been offensive to people. Some of them have struck people as harsh, as unkindly. But that, that effort to protect an institution, the family, which is valued highly and is critical of the theology, has on the uh, has to work against a pastoral urge, which is whoever's there, we want to take them in, we want to care for them. It may be the bishop's own son or daughter, because this is uh, the, the gays are appear in many, in virtually all families, I guess nowadays, and the urge to hold on to those people and make a comfortable place is always going to soften the edges and the application of these, uh, these the principles will be uh, uh, muffled to a certain extent. So I th- hope that over the years, uh, all kinds of people will always feel comfortable in our church. Hmm. 
You're in kind of an interesting position. You you engage with believers, and you say people engage with you when they're maybe going periods of doubt. Uh, also engage with the broader scholarly community. And I wonder mm-hmm. on that second part, um, what kind of a period are are we in with with Mormon history and engaging the the entire scholarly community? In? Well, we're actually in pretty good shape. Um, when I was just getting started, I was as a historian. I was um, part of the group that organized the Mormon History Association uh, in 1965, and at that time, there were n- not many PhDs. Before 1945, the end of the war, World War II, uh, there'd only been six PhDs in history for the last 50 years, and they'd got their PhDs and then written very little, and the there was really no scholarly work by Mormons on uh, Mormonism. And there was nothing written by Mormons that the academic world would take seriously. They just assumed it would be biased and useless. Um, Since that time, we've just kept pouring graduate Latter-day Saint kids into graduate schools, and they've done the work. They've earned their keep. And now, the work that's done by Mormon scholars is respected at least as equally as work done by anyone. So Mormons have really been able to reclaim their own history. They can write their own history. So when these Mormon studies chairs open up at various universities, it's Mormons who are the leading candidates in every case that we've had so far. Hmm. So it has been a, quite a revolution in um, in. Uh, the writing of Mormon history. Mm. Listening to another podcast uh, in preparation for this interview, um, you and the interviewer, uh, she engaged you in a, in a discussion of um, uh, the church as a whole and Mormon scholars and other scholars uh, dealing with Mormon history, engaging with Mormon history. But she felt like there was uh, maybe a dearth of engaging with theology, the, you know, engaging mm. on a scholarly level the, the Mormon theology. Well, it's true that Mormons think they have a theology and they think they do theology and they mean the plan of salvation, that God has a body. But this is more what uh, would be called dogma. That is just what a blunt statement of what God does. Theology involves working through all the problems, the problem of evil and how can a God who's apart from the world partake of the world. And it's a very technical, it has a strong philosophical uh, component to it. And Mormons have really not engaged the great texts. How do Mormons react to the confessions of St. Augustine or to Calvin's Institutes or to Karl Barth in the 20th century? We, we haven't been interested in those people because we think we've got all the answers in our head. So in terms of academic what I would call serious theology, we're really just beginning. Fortunately, we have some people who are getting into this in a, in a big way. Mm. So I think we're on, on our way, but we're really just at the start. Mm. What, uh, what is out there to be gained for, you know, for, I guess, Mormon scholars or Mormons uh, to, to engage in that theology? Well, we sometimes think uh, theology or philosophy is abstruse, it's it's uh, sky blue, it's impractical, has no import. But that is not true. 
what seem like technical, abstruse problems have at the core some deep human problem. So these philosophers are just thinking through more deeply problems that ordinary people have in their lives sort of buried away, causing a little discomfort, but no one understanding quite what it was. So philosophers are, are actually performing a work that's valuable to all of, them, all of us. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing my conversation with Richard Bushman, recorded in March while he was on campus for a conference on the USU campus called New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. And uh, Richard Bushman is professor of history emeritus at Columbia University, formerly the Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, author of a biography of uh, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling is the uh, title of that book. We'll talk following the break about reaction to that book that Professor Bushman gets. He's author of many other works, of course, and uh, we'll continue this discussion following this break. Thanks for being with us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We are hearing a conversation recorded in March with Richard Bushman. Richard Bushman is professor of history emeritus at Columbia University and formerly Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University. He was on campus, uh, accompanied by uh, several other scholars, uh, to give a presentation in the uh, conference, New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. Richard Bushman, among many other books, is author of a biography of uh, Joseph Smith called Rough Stone Rolling. We'll uh, talk a bit about this at the beginning of this uh, segment. Thanks for joining us. I want to ask you uh, just briefly, coming down to the end of the interview here, but uh, um, about reaction to your book, Rough Stone Rolling. Do, do you get reaction, more reaction to that than your other work? What, what could, that, that would seem to be a, a point of interaction with, with you and, and, and readers. Well, yes, I do get a reaction. I had a friend at Columbia on the English faculty who published a book on Herman Melville, a very distinguished scholar, wonderful book. The same year I studied, I published uh, Rough Stone Rolling. And, of course, my book just sold tens of thousands of copies. He sold, you know, a few thousand. He said he made a basic mistake. He should have put Joseph Smith in the title of his book. <laughs> so there was, I'll never write a book that will get as much response as uh, Rough Stone Rolling mm -hmm. just simply because of on the subject matter. So, and and your, you you did present Joe Smith as you know flesh and blood human mm -hmm. being, also inspired. Uh, what reaction do you get? Well, uh, the Mormons uh, themselves had varied reactions. I had people say, "I read fifty pages and I couldn't read a page more. It's too painful." All these things coming along, they they didn't like. Um, and, of course, an author hears more from friendly reactions than critical reactions. I'm sure, I know there were people who were troubled by it, but there were many who were relieved and happy that you got a Joseph Smith who seemed real, not someone who's elevated five feet above the earth, but someone who was really planted in the earth and had problems and struggled along. The most common reaction was it was helped me to realize that Joseph Smith had problems just like I have problems mm. and gives me some hope. Mm. 
Now, there is a place for, you know, there's a tradition of hagiography, right? Uh, <laughs> this was not that. I don't think you would say. Um, uh, I guess there there have been the books written on the Joseph Smith five feet above the ground, right? You wanted to present the uh, human Joseph Smith. What, what was the impetus there? Well, there were really two. One was, um, I'm a professional historian. I have to deal with the sources. And I couldn't just dismiss material that was critical of Joseph Smith. Uh, because I would be vulnerable. You know, I knew my book would be read by my colleagues in the historical profession. They'd be reviewing it. And I didn't want to have put up something they could shoot full of holes. Um, so there's that, that urge. On the other hand, I truly believe that if you are true to the sources, it's filled with religious yearning, with religious uh, st- striving and accomplishments. And you... That was part of his life. That was Von Brody's great mistake, the writer of, the, of No Man Knows My History. She didn't appreciate that Joseph Smith had a religious impulse in him or religious thoughts that were serious thoughts. And from my point of view, that's, that's the heart of what he's up to. He's a, he's a maker of religion. So I felt like that had to, to go in. And to a lot of people, that made it sound kind of positive, very much in favor of Joseph Smith. I was just trying to be fair and true to the material I found in the sources. Hmm. You say you, you're, um, I don't know, I don't want to use the word confessor of sorts, you, you, you are a point of engagement, I guess because of Rust and Rolling and other scholarship, for Mormons who are coming to a, a place of doubt. They want to engage with someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe you have a finger, you know, your finger on the, on the pulse is uh, the church seems, goes up and down in, in this with, Groups of people, larger, smaller, leaving the faith, having having doubts. Where do you think church is at this point? We're in a difficult position, and it's uh, not a, a difficulty that's unique to Mormonism. I mean, you hear all the time these figures about the millennials and their disinterest in religion. Huge numbers of people who now say that they're, and when they ask a question about religion, they say none. Uh, and on top of that, there's kind of an aggressive atheist movement. And I, in, in circles I run, I find young people quite happy to say, I'm a, an atheist, like they might have said before. You know, I'm a Catholic or I'm a Yankee fan, hmm. even. So it's kind of been, it's a little bit stylish. And Mormons think all the problems with disbelief are unique to us and our gold plates and our crazy... Uh, stories, but uh, it's it's everywhere. So we're we're fighting a secular trend. I think it'll reverse itself. The spiritual impulses in humans is too great. It'll have to find some kind of an expression. So uh, I don't think that it's going to permanently damage or s- stop the growth of the religion. But there will be a period here that's going to be uh, pretty tough to work with. Mm. But you do think there will be a revival of religious seeking? I, I think so. I mean, that's the, that's the story of, of our history over the last 200 years. There is what's called the secular hypothesis, that reason was so powerful it just erode religion. And faith would just get weaker and weaker and weaker. But that didn't prove true. Uh, instead, you have the evangelical revival of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And... Uh, 
It may not be conventional denominational religion, but it'll be some form of spiritual expression that allow people to find meaning in the world, to feel like they're connected, to find a basis of love and friendship um, through a, a common a commitment. Hmm. I wonder, uh, uh, we talk about religion and culture. Sometimes those are very closely intertwined. LDS Church is, is growing worldwide. And uh, but when you talk about LDS culture, sometimes people mean Utah culture or Western yeah. culture. Um, I wonder where you think that's going to go. Is there going to be a shift in the, in the overall worldwide church in terms of culture? Yes, so we you know we have uh, hundreds of stories now of people carrying the gospel to Africa or India and uh, trespassing on some cultural standard. It, it makes the the missionary look backward and short-sighted. So I think we're going to become sensitive about avoiding problems like that. Um, can you take should you take your shoes off if you go into a church meeting? The missionaries say, no, you can't take your shoes off. But to walk into a holy place with your shoes on in India is an affront to the powers, that, the spiritual powers. So uh, we have to get, uh, get used to that. And, of course, we've got all these migrations coming in. Half the church is Spanish. But it's going to take a while. I mean, you look at the LDS hymn book, not a single tune by a Spanish composer or in a Spanish mood. And that's, uh, that's crazy in a church that's nearly half Spanish-speaking by now. So there'll have to be a, a lot of changes al- along that line. What are you What are you up to uh, next? Do you have another book coming out? Uh, well, I do. I just finished up a book uh, called The American Farmer in the 18th Century. It's a book I began when I was working on Joseph Smith. I wanted to do something to understand the, the world of which he lived, which was an agricultural world. And then I'm going to um, work uh, on a history of the gold plates, a cultural history of the gold plates, how they've been used and thought about or down right down to the present. But my big project right now is the creation of a, uh, a Mormon art center in New York City. Hmm. We uh, want to uh, sort of provide a metropolitan home for Mormon artists so they're not just showing to Mormon circles in Utah and California, but they can be shown in criticized and reviewed and so on in New York. So we're planning a large festival in New York uh, at the end of June for four days, and we'll have a day-long symposium on arts. It's uh, the 50th anniversary of President Kimball's challenge to Mormons to produce art that matches the great art of the world. We'll assess where we are in that quest and have a large art exhibit and uh, a concert in a whole series of activities. Hmm. Where, uh, where do you think Mormon art is? Mormon art is extraordinarily vigorous. There is more Mormon art going on than you or I have ever dreamed of. I have a friend in New York who spent 20 years looking at all kinds of arts, poetry, music, composition, visual arts, etc. And he's discovered people you wouldn't believe. Mormon artists in Angola converted when they're in in Portugal, go back to marvelous work, sell their work all, all over Europe. There's a Chinese composer, joined the church in Paris when she was there, just received the Prix de Rome, which is the premier prize for music composition worldwide. Uh, 
No one knows her name. And there are, there are 10 Mormon artists in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And how many Mormons can name even one of them? Mm. So we live in ignorance of our own tradition. Mm. And one of our aims is to bring the, those people to the fore, to catalog them so we know where they are, and then bring them to New York where they can be displayed for a wider audience. Yeah. I know my, my father always said that uh, Mormon art will have arrived when we have a great uh, Mormon opera. And he, he said, why not Joseph Smith? That, that would be, a, you know, yeah. maybe some, some uh, uh, composer could, could use your book as a basis for a libretto. Actually, there are two Mormon artists, on Joseph, two Mormon operas. Are there really? Are yes. there really? One called Plates of Gold okay. by Murray Boren, and uh, another called Joseph Joseph by uh, Crawford Gates. Okay, I'll check those out. <laughs> Very good. Anything else you'd like to say about the conference or anything else? Well, it's, uh, I just want to say that being, being here with this large audience and with my colleagues, that uh, Mormon intellectual life is extremely vigorous. It's very candid. It's dealing with all the problems. And uh, it's a lot of fun to be part of it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, Tom. It's my conversation from March with Richard Bushman, professor of history emeritus at Columbia University and formerly Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University. Among many uh, books, he's author of a biography of uh, Joseph Smith called Rough Stone Rolling. He was on the USU campus in March this year. Uh, for a uh, conference called New Perspectives on Joseph Smith and Translation. That event was sponsored by USU's Religious Studies Program and the Faith Matters Foundation, a nonprofit organization that encourages discussion about Mormon topics. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in uh, for that. We'll have uh, a uh, an encore presentation of uh, a very interesting episode from the Objectified series coming up following this break. Thanks for tuning in for Access Utah. We have a few minutes here at the end of the program. We're going to uh, bring you a program uh, upcoming in the next few days on uh, mental health, mental illness. I want to preview that a bit by looking to the past, uh, a wonderful series produced by the News Department here at uh, UPR, uh, Objectified More Than a Body. We're going to hear um, that encore presentation of one of the episodes. This is titled A Mother-Daughter Battle with Anorexia. Anorexia nervosa is an eating disorder characterized by self-starvation and excessive weight loss. According to the National Eating Disorder Association, anorexia has one of the highest death rates of any mental health condition, and 1% of American females suffer from this life-threatening disorder. Dr. Laura Hill, president of the Center for Balanced Living, presented her research at TEDx Columbus in 2012. In her TED Talk, she spoke about what it's like to eat if you have an eating disorder. For those who don't, they feel calm, pleasure, and satisfaction from the food. But for those who do, feel the complete opposite. But a person with, um, with an eating disorder, such as anorexia, when they eat, they experience high anxiety, extreme thought disturbance, and noise. I want to give you an idea of what that noise sounds like. And so the person who has an eating disorder and has had her breakfast, she's now trying to go to work. 
She's trying to go to class, and the noise and the disturbance is acute. She's trying to hear her professor through the noise. She's trying to hear um, her employer talk to her and have an interaction with her. And she's trying to focus through the noise. So how in the world, if she's going to have her breakfast, and then she's supposed to have a lunch, and she's supposed to have dinner too, and if the noise continues to be acute, how can I function? How can I work? How can I have a decent interaction and a clear, focused interaction and get this project done? Huh. Simply by not eating. This is a very real scenario for McKenna. I can't say for everyone, but it's a coping mechanism. That's the way I would describe it. That's the way it functions. That's the function of the eating disorder for me. It's if I'm stressed, if I have anxiety, it, that's how I take care of it. To say that it's a coping mechanism, like the opposite of that would be that it's a choice and that I'm just like, oh, I decide this day to just eat differently and eat weirder. And that would imply that it's a choice, but it's not for me at all because I don't have the ability, at least right now or in the past, haven't been able to like turn it on and off just at free will. It's, I would say, like an alcoholic grabs a, a drink when they're stressed out. McKenna Anderson grew up in Cache Valley. She's 22 and is sandwiched between two older sisters and two younger brothers. She was diagnosed with anorexia a few years ago, and she'll tell you that her mom, Mary Kay, has been there with her as they try and make sense of this deadly mental disease. I didn't even learn till less than two years ago that eating disorders are biologically driven. There's kind of three factors. The first one is there's a gene, just like an alcoholic has a gene. You know, somebody with that gene can be predisposed to begin with. And then what happens is on top of the gene, there's the personality type. And the personality type is like strong-willed perfectionism and prone to anxiety. And then you have a trigger in life. McKenna's trigger happened when she was a teenager. Her parents got a divorce when she was about three years old and had lived with mom until she was 15. At this time, her parents changed living situations, and McKenna was now living with her dad full-time. It was at this point her picky eating habits, as she called it, became a bigger problem. Beyond devastating thing for me because I couldn't go back to it. It was already a done deal, and yet I watched the effect it had on her. And it, oh, if I could go back, it, I'd do it in a heartbeat, um, but you can't. To cope with the anxiety, depression, and stress caused by this big life change, McKenna ate very rarely and began to lose weight drastically. She's five foot five, and at her lowest weight, McKenna was 52 pounds. She's been hospitalized multiple times with liver and kidney failure and constant episodes of passing out. She couldn't hold her cat anymore. She had to downsize her purse. She was carrying in groceries little tiny bags at a time because she could only carry one because she had to hold onto the railing to get up to her second floor. So I would like prioritize what groceries I could, like I would bring in the milk, the yogurt, like refrigerated stuff first. And then I'd be like, okay, tomorrow I can bring in the cans. Tomorrow, the next, the third day I can bring in the cat food or because I couldn't bring it all at once, I didn't have enough energy. And so it got to the point where it was so debilitating she couldn't even function in life. 
When McKenna was hospitalized at her most critical point, her body mass index was at an 8, and most hospitals could not admit her. Most hospitals have a minimum BMI of 15. But they found a hospital in Denver that took patients with severe anorexia. This saved her life. McKenna was treated for malnutrition and had to be fed in small increments because large amounts could fatally overrun her system. At McKenna's current state, her doctors would recommend she live in a residential treatment facility. She's lived in these facilities before, but whenever she is discharged, she says she relapses. For her, being in a treatment center is the last thing she wants to do. So she and her doctors put together a contingency plan that, if she sticks with it, she would be able to live on her own. I see my doctor. I do blood draws twice a week. I go to my doctor and psychiatrist and dietitian all once a week. And we have this agreement of if I slip this much within two weeks, like, and then they warn me, then I get like a certain amount of warnings. And then at that point, I'll have to go back to residential again. At this point, the end goal gets a little complex between mother and daughter. Being McKenna's mom, Mary Kay wants to see her daughter completely recovered. But McKenna doesn't believe that will happen for her. Her motivation to stay healthy is to do just enough to stay out of treatment. It's worth it to me to do at least the minimum if I can have some of my freedoms, because in treatment, all your freedoms are taken away. And so that concerns us, her family, because Mm -hmm. um, we don't want her to do just the minimum, but that's the best we've got right now. Yeah, take it or leave it. (laughs) The the minimum, well, it's, it's her alive doing her very minimum to stay out of treatment or in treatment and being suicidal and hating every minute of it or dead. And so we're just taking, okay, this is, I'll take her at her minimum alive. You know, we'll take what we can get. She told me last spring when she was in treatment, she said, Mom, I cannot do this any longer. She said, I feel like if you try to make me live without this eating disorder, it's like cutting off my arms and my legs and slashing my body with paper cuts and making me just live. She goes, that's how I feel. That's how painful it is for me to live in recovery. So I need to keep the eating disorder and function with it. Both McKenna and Mary Kay would like to see a change in how people talk about eating disorders. McKenna wants to see people talk about the illness openly and sensitively to the person with the disorder. She wants people to know that this is okay to do. If you or anyone you know may be struggling with an eating disorder, you can find more resources and information at upr.org. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Danny Hayes. This segment is part of an ongoing original Utah Public Radio series, Objectified, More Than a Body. Support for the program comes from the Utah Women's Giving Circle, a grassroots community with everyday philanthropists raising the questions and raising the funds to empower Utah women and girls. Information available online at utahwomensgivingcircle.com. And to access the full series of stories, you can go to upr.org. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. There have been a few big moments in the history of cooking. In 1961, when Julia Child published Mastering the Art of French Cooking. In 1718, when Mary Ailes recorded a recipe for ice cream. Around 800 BC, when the Greeks introduced olive oil to the Mediterranean. But nothing can beat that moment 1.8 million years ago 
when a homo habilis creature, we'll call him Greg, let the starchy root he was gnawing slip into the fire, rescued it, took a bite, and evolved into a human. Okay, that may be oversimplifying things. But Harvard anthropologist Richard Wrangham thinks that humans couldn't have evolved until they learned to cook food. They couldn't have survived otherwise, he writes in the book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. Before cooking, we had to spend an enormous amount of time chewing. Animals of similar size and weight to us chew five to six hours per day just to extract enough calories to maintain their body weight. If you add to that a necessary rest period when Greg's gut would have been working to digest the fibrous mass he'd just eaten, that would be half the day. That left little time for other things like hunting and socializing. The average modern human, on the other hand, chews for less than one hour per day. Cooking first developed about the same time that humans learned to control fire, or logically. It may have happened accidentally, or Greg may have found an animal killed in a grass fire and given it a nibble. When cooking became a predictable daily occurrence, it benefited Homo habilis in several ways. It killed germs, destroyed some poisons, and made his food safer. But more importantly, it gave him energy. When food is cooked, it becomes more digestible. Cooking gelatinizes starch, denatures protein, and softens both fiber and protein, permitting a more complete digestion and energy extraction bite for bite than raw food. It is an enormous energy gain from 30 to 50%. Our ancient ancestors used that extra energy they became more active as hunters and engaged in social activities. They had more babies and took care of them for longer. Over generations, their bodies changed. They developed smaller stomachs, smaller mouths and teeth, and weaker jaws. With a smaller gut, their ribs became less flared and their pelvis narrowed. And with the energy saved from these changes, they grew bigger brains. Homo erectus had a 40% larger brain than Homo habilis and looked much more like a modern human. So it was a great moment in history. Thanks, Greg, for making olive oil, ice cream, cheese fondue, apple pie, Three Musketeers bars, and all the rest of it possible. This is Lael Gilbert with Bread and Butter.